The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Irit Tamir. She is the director of Oxfam America's private sector department, where she works with companies to ensure that their business practices result in positive social and environmental impacts for vulnerable communities throughout the world. Ms. Tamir leads Oxfam America's work on business and development, including shareholder engagement, value chain assessments, and collaborative advocacy initiatives, such as the successful Behind the Brands campaign, which we'll be talking about today. Ms. Tamir is co-author of Community Voice and Human Rights Impact Assessments and has contributed to numerous reports at Oxfam focused on business and human rights issues. She is a frequent contributor on topics of agricultural policies, labor, human rights, and their intersection with business in major news outlets, including NPR, The Guardian, and The New York Times. Ms. Tamir holds a JD from Boston College Law School and a master's in international law from the University of Miami Law School, where she was a Ford Foundation fellow. She is a devoted human rights activist and speaks publicly about human rights, climate resilience, and the food system. She has had years of experience in government relations and is a former prosecutor who supervised civil rights prosecutions and hate crime. Welcome, Ms. Tamir. It's an honor to have you. Thank you for having me here. Well, I'm very much interested in the Behind the Brands and most recently Behind the Barcodes campaign that Oxfam does. But before we dive into that, I'd like to get a little bit of background information both about yourself and Oxfam. What is Oxfam? What is the mission and vision? And how did you end up working for Oxfam? Well, Oxfam is a global organization working to end the injustice of poverty. We help people build better futures for themselves, hold the powerful accountable, and save lives during disasters. Our mission is to tackle the root causes of poverty and create lasting solutions, and we do that by working in over 90 countries in the world, and we do it through partners. So we really try to work with partners on the ground in terms of creating these solutions. In terms of my own background, as you said, I am a lawyer. I always focused my efforts, even in law school, on international law and human rights and always saw myself going into that. But for a variety of reasons, my path started out in prosecuting criminals, which I found really wasn't exactly the way I really thought I could solve the problems of the world. I felt that I was only really addressing symptoms and not root causes of the problems that I was seeing in the courts. And so I started working on advocacy. I worked for a couple of different community relations organizations. I worked for a state senator on legislative policy, but had always wanted to work at an organization like Oxfam that would address root causes, human rights, and development. And I made my way here about 10 years ago and began working in food and agriculture, which really fit 
my interest because I am a foodie at heart. Yeah. It's so interesting because in public health, we look at problems also from an upstream perspective. So if we see a problem downstream, we want to be looking upstream to find out what is causing the problem so that we can get to the root cause, which is why I love Oxfam's mission and vision. I think they are very much well aligned with the public health community. I also like the way Oxfam focuses on change rather than charity. Again, getting to that, let's find the root causes of these problems. And the report that came across my desk that made my ears perk up was ripe for change in U.S. supermarket supply chains. Being a foodie yourself, I think you probably have seen a growing interest not so much in terms of the nutrients on our plate, but where our food comes from, how it was produced, under what conditions. And like you, I am trying to drive that awareness. I want people to care about these, and I'm delighted to see increased consumer interest. So tell me a little bit about the Behind the Brands campaign and how that evolved over the years to look at different factions of the food supply chain? Sure. Well, Oxfam's been engaging the private sector for decades, both in our campaigns and advocacy work, but also in our collaborations and partnership work. And we've had a long history of campaigning on food companies and working with them on issues of sustainability and human rights. Just going back even as far as 2006, we launched a campaign on Starbucks on behalf of coffee farmers in Ethiopia. And more recently, as you say, we launched a campaign in 2012 called Behind the Brands, which focused on the top 10 food and beverage companies. And that campaign saw really groundbreaking commitments from many of the companies in the campaign, with all of them improving on a scorecard that we created on issues of sustainable and ethical sourcing. And then in 2015, we also launched a campaign on behalf of workers and poultry processing plants right here in the U.S., Mm. where we targeted the four largest poultry companies those companies being Purdue, Pilgrim, Sanderson, and Tyson. And we really saw Tyson's make very strong commitments to improve working conditions, wages, and worker voice for those workers at their processing plants. So we've had a long history in working on food and doing campaigns on food. And this new campaign, Behind the Barcodes, is really kind of a second phase, as they say, of the Behind the Brands campaign. One of the things we learned in that campaign was that a lot of the food and beverage companies told us that a lot of the power for where these food supply chains is really held is with food retailers or supermarkets. And they told us to start looking at food retailers and supermarkets and see how they're doing business and how it's impacting all these food supply chains. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And you looked at the leading food retailers in the United States, as well as in Europe. We will stay focused on the United States for a moment. And then you have a chart that shows how they stack up. And I have to tell you, the supermarket scorecard, which is available, I should let our listeners know that behindthebarcodes.org will lead you to these different reports, and they're extremely eye-opening. But Behind the Barcodes Supermarket Scorecard, I was appalled to see just how low supermarkets scored on things like transparency and accountability. And farmers, you know, what is the relationship like with farmers and other suppliers? And then women, every single supermarket 
didn't do very well in terms of women's rights and issues. So how did you choose the issues that you looked at? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, basically, we were looking at the inequality that we see in these food value chains. And at the end of the day, Oxfam's really interested in pulling people out of poverty. And unfortunately, the ironic paradox of our food supply chains is that those who produce and grow our food are often the ones living in poverty and don't have enough to eat. And so, you know, it was really kind of our mission and objective in this campaign to support those women and food producers that grow our food and process our food. So we really took the themes based on that. And, you know, transparency is just one of those issues that if companies aren't transparent, people can't hold them to account on the commitments they make or the processes that they put in place for suppliers and workers. So that's part of the reason that we look at transparency, because it really is key to holding any company accountable. And then, of course, we wanted to understand how they were treating their workers and their supply chain, the smallholder producers that grow the commodities that they source, and women overall, because women often have hurdles that men just don't have in these supply chains. Um, As we know, women often occupy the lowest-paying positions, and that's also true in agriculture. They often occupy the lowest-paying jobs in these supply chains. They typically are discriminated against if they're pregnant. They often have to also care for family at home, so they have that extra burden. So women really face a lot of extra hurdles in these supply chains. If they're farmers, they often can't get loans or access to inputs like seeds and fertilizers at the same rate that men can. And so that's why we really felt like these supermarkets have an opportunity to really support women in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. I know I was surprised to see the consolidation in the supermarket industry so that as our choices are shrinking, I think that consumers have less power because our choices become so few, if any. Yeah, that's right. Look, millions of people produce our food and work long and hard hours in in what we would consider pretty brutal conditions for very little pay. And that's despite the fact that billions of dollars in profits are going to the food industry. And we really see the inequality of power as the root cause of a lot of the suffering that's being found in our food. And it's in part being caused by the rising power of supermarkets and other corporate food giants and this declining power of small-scale farmers and workers. And you can see this, as you say, by the consolidation of supermarkets just in the last number of years. So many of your listeners will undoubtedly know that Amazon recently bought Whole Foods. Right. But there have been other mergers and acquisitions in the last few years. So Albertsons has acquired Safeway and other supermarket chains, um, Ahold, which is a Dutch company but has quite a big presence in the U.S. on the East Coast, merged with a company called Del Hayes. And the five big supermarkets in the U.S. occupy 50% of the market share. So 
these companies are getting bigger, and that means they have a lot more power over their suppliers. I thought it was really interesting to see the breakdown. So Walmart is the largest of all of the supermarket outlets. They are privately owned, and I was looking at some of the compensation data in the report. It says that the comparison between executive compensation and the wages earned by workers in the supply chains of these supermarkets is stark. It would take a woman processing shrimp at a typical plant in Indonesia or Thailand more than 4,000 years to earn what the chief executive at a top U.S. supermarket earns in a year. As an example, we have in the report that Walmart CEO has enjoyed an 841% pay increase over the last 16 years. I don't know anybody else who's enjoyed that kind of wage increase. Yeah, that's right. But what we're seeing is a lot more of the value in these value chains is going to CEO pay and dividends to shareholders. And less and less is really coming down to the workers and producers. In fact, we conducted research on a basket of 12 everyday consumer products that are produced in developing countries and exported to supermarkets in southern countries. And our findings show that supermarkets are capturing closer to 50% of the end consumer price, while small-scale farmers and workers are capturing closer to 5%. And the trends indicate that supermarkets have increased the share since the mid-1990s, while the share for small-scale farmers and workers has declined. And this is in the context of increasing costs for input. So while farmers and workers have more costs, right. their share of the value continues to drop. Right. Well, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Ms. Irit Tamir. She is the director of Oxfam America's private sector department, and we are talking about one of the very successful reports that Oxfam has put out, part of the Behind the Brands campaign. Most recently, we are looking at Behind the Barcodes, which is an assessment of different supermarkets and how they score in terms of human rights. Well, I think in terms of human rights, we probably should jump to the seafood industry and in particular shrimp because it is the largest seller of all seafood in the United States. And if we've been listening to some of the reports on public radio, I know there have been some scathing exposés about worker conditions on the BehindTheBarcodes.org website, there is a video and we can hear voices of individuals who work in the seafood and specifically shrimping industry. I believe there's a voice of a woman who is denied bathroom breaks and suffers a bladder infection as a result of that. And this is just one of many atrocities. There's a gentleman who says if someone falls off the ship, they don't know until the next morning if he's missing. So hard work, poor pay, poor working conditions. And we don't know this when we go to the supermarket and buy our bag of frozen shrimp. So I think it's important for us to know what's behind those shrimp and what our alternatives are. So tell me a little bit about your investigation into shrimp and seafood. Sure. So Oxfam always works, as I said, with partners on the ground, and we worked with a number of organizations in Thailand and Indonesia who represent workers, many of whom are migrants actually coming from places like Myanmar. 
And we conducted research with those partners in Thailand and Indonesia where we interviewed a number of workers working in seafood supply chains, covering almost seven suppliers in total. What we found was really endemic. We didn't, you know, this isn't an anomaly. This isn't one seafood supplier where this is some sort of expose. Our research really shows that these issues are entrenched across the industry. Seafood is the most commonly traded food commodity by value. It's worth more than $150 billion a year. Mm. It's a bigger source of export revenues for developing countries than meat, tobacco, rice, and sugar combined. Wow. And it provides jobs for nearly 56 million people. So this is a hot commodity. And Americans, for example, consume up to four pounds of shrimp per person per year. Actually, while Europe is the biggest seafood importer, Shrimp is one of its most consumed seafood commodities. So, you know, it's it's a big money maker for supermarkets. And despite the fact that there have been several exposés on workers in seafood supply chains, some of your listeners maybe have heard about the various exposés that a number of media outlets have done on fishing vessels and workers working on those vessels in, in some really abhorrent slave-like conditions. And there have been recent progress made on trying to tackle these issues as a result of those exposés. But nevertheless, we still found that there were a number of challenges that suppliers are dealing with. So among the suppliers in Thailand that we looked at, wages were so low for workers that over 60% of women surveyed were categorized as severely food insecure Mm. and had to work extensive overtime Many had to pay recruitment fees and were incurring significant debts to secure their roles. Among the suppliers in Indonesia that we looked at, women reported working unpaid hours in order to hit targets of up to 19 kilograms of shrimp peeled per hour just to earn the minimum wage. And if for those of you who have ever tried to peel a shrimp, you can imagine. I was thinking just that. (laughs) I know I always get frustrated doing it. Exactly. It's a very tedious job. Workers at some of the plants reported toilet breaks and access to drinking water were strictly controlled. And one worker we spoke with in Thailand actually said that there were only nine toilets available for over a 1,000 workers working in a plant. Another in Indonesia said that they had only a couple of drinking glasses available for hundreds of workers to use in order to just drink water. And some complained of urinary tract infections because of the lack of bathroom breaks. Mm. Um, Many of the workers complained that this work is exhausting and that verbal abuse by supervisors was routine and that access to effective trade unions was strictly limited. Mm. And I mentioned earlier that we had women reporting that they were being tested for pregnancy and denied jobs if they were found to be pregnant. So, you know, again, women in particular are often discriminated against in these processing plants. Yeah. So what do we do? We like shrimp. Clearly, Americans are big shrimp consumers. There isn't a label, is there? You know, like I look for when I buy coffee, for example, I look for fairly traded, and I do the same for when I buy chocolate. And that's assuming we have access to markets that even provide that kind of chocolate and coffee. But there isn't a label for shrimp that says, you know, this has been caught sustainably and the workers have been treated humanely. Where do we go to make a difference? 
Well, it's a really great question. So first I would say don't stop buying the shrimp because that will only hurt the workers and people who work in these supply chains. So we don't want you to not buy the shrimp. What we really want you to do is to tell your supermarket that you care about ethical sourcing, that you care about sustainable practices, and that you want them to show you how they're doing it. Because at the end of the day, what we often hear from food companies is they tell us that consumers don't care about these issues, and that's why it's hard for them to actually put any investment behind it. But if consumers tell them that they do care, that will change. We found in our Behind the Brands campaign that when consumers spoke, companies listened. They care about what consumers think, and they will change the way they do business in order to keep those consumers. And supermarkets are one of those things that people tend to be pretty loyal to. Right. Most people don't shop around at any supermarket. They go to the one that they always go to or the two that they always go to over and over again. They're quite loyal to their supermarket. And we think that's a good thing, actually, because we think that that means that you have a relationship with that market and they count on you to be there every week buying your groceries. So we think you have a lot of power and can tell the supermarket what you want. And the thing we want you to do is tell them that that you want to have ethical products in their supermarket and on their shelves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I notice a lot of supermarkets now are having these loyalty programs where you, you sign up and you get discounts if you spend so much. So to your point, this idea of developing deeper and stronger relationships with their consumer base is important. I also think, and you can tell me how you feel about this as well, but I also think that social media has a wonderful role to play in terms of calling out bad business practice. And I know that there are people in industries that keep tabs on Twitter and Facebook, and they don't like to see any kind of public shaming. So I think we as consumers and educators, by promoting the kinds of findings in your report, we can also bring attention to some of the practices that you discovered in the industry and say, this is important to me. Please stop this bad behavior. Oh, absolutely. And you can go on our BehindTheBarcodes.org website, and we have a petition there that will go to the two supermarkets we're focused on right now, which is Whole Foods and Ahold, which owns Stop and Shop, Giant, and Food Lion. And we're focused on them because we found that they both score particularly low on the workers' theme. And we also found that they were linked to this research that we found on seafood. We also think that Whole Foods in particular, which had issues in their seafood supply chain a couple of years ago and said that they were going to do more to clean up their act, haven't really followed through on that commitment, and we think that they can do more. So if you sign that petition, both Whole Foods and Ahold, which owns Stop and Shop, Food Lion, and Giant, will get that petition. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxfam America, and we share a whole host of materials on Twitter and our Facebook page. And oftentimes, the more you share those materials, including the video that you, you cited to on our Behind the Barcodes website, All those kinds of materials, when you share them, those companies are seeing it, and then they know that consumers care about it. Right. I know when I get my newspaper flyers, seeing what's on sale at what market, I think price is very much a driver for many consumers. 
But for the shoppers at a place like Whole Foods, for example, that tends to be located, you know, Whole Foods markets are located in areas of the country where the shoppers have enough of an income generally where maybe they don't have to be so bottom line driven where since they have their basic needs met, they can go beyond and they can have a voice to try to improve the food system. Well, that's right. And I think what might be surprising for your listeners, I know it was surprising for us, Whole Foods has historically always marketed itself as a sustainable grocer. And so we really expected that Whole Foods would come out much higher on our scorecard than it did. And in fact, of all the U.S. companies, Walmart did score the highest. Now, I want to you know, emphasize two things about that. One is that all the companies scored low. The highest score among the U.S. companies was an overall 17% with Walmart scoring that. And of course, 17% out of 100 is not a good score. I don't think any of us would accept that from our children if they came home with right. a score on a test. Right. But, but nonetheless, Walmart was the highest scoring, and Whole Foods only scores an overall 2%. So I think that was quite surprising to us. The other thing I just want to mention is that our scorecard looks at their sourcing. It looks at workers in their supply chain. It doesn't look at how they treat their own workers. So I want right. to make sure that that's clear to your listeners, too, because I know people might look at the scorecard and think, well, geez, if, you know, I've heard things about Walmart and Costco supposedly treats it, its workers well. And we didn't look at those policies. We were looking at how they're sourcing. So right. I just want to make sure that's that's clear. That's for your next report, <laughs> right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talked about being surprised about Whole Foods, and I agree. I was surprised as well. Were there any other surprises that you want to talk about? Well, I think just the lack of transparency overall among the companies was pretty shocking because a lot of the big companies, big multinational companies now have really appreciated that there are these new UN guiding principles on business and human rights, which were adopted in 2011. And those principles really suggest that companies have a responsibility to respect human rights throughout their supply chains and their operations, and that they need to conduct good due diligence and engage their stakeholders around that. And that usually means having to be transparent about what your supply chains are, who your suppliers are, and how you conduct your due diligence. And so it was a bit shocking to us that, you know, these very large companies who are undoubtedly aware of these principles haven't taken up the call yet to do this good due diligence. And so, you know, we were just surprised, I think, that that was the case. You know, the European supermarkets, as I said, do tend to do better on this front. I think a lot of the American supermarkets would say that European consumers are a bit more demanding when it comes to these kinds of issues. So I think it's our opportunity as American consumers to show American supermarkets that we care about these issues too. I agree. Do you want to leave us with one charge before we wrap up? Oh, please go to the petition on behindthebarcodes.org and sign it um, and follow us on our Twitter and Facebook pages at Oxfam America. 
Fantastic. Well, we need to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Ms. Irit Tamir. She is director of Oxfam, America's private sector department. We have been talking about the successful Behind the Brands campaign and the new Behind the barcodes.org campaign. I encourage you to go to the website, learn more, sign the petition, and if you have a voice, please use it. It will make a tremendous difference upstream. Thank you so much, Ms. Tamir, for all the work you and Oxfam do. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.